This is the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. Today, we're joined by Anna Maikes, CEO of Neuroelectrics. Neuroelectrics sells transcranial stimulation and EEG hardware and software products to researchers and medical professionals. On the show, we talk about building a real revenue-generating neurotech company, balancing demands from research and clinical customers, and one of our favorite topics, neuroethics. And now, here is Anna Maikes. Anna, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So maybe to start, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to be involved in the neuroscience community? So this is my second company. The first company called Startup started to do research many years in year 2000. And my exposure to neuroscience is my co-founder is a physicist and mathematician trained in Berkeley, more on the business side of the company. And he was fascinated by using math and physics to try to decode the brain. So in year 2000, a doctor reached out to him and said, well, you're a great mathematician. Can you process these electroencephalograms from two alcoholics? And he was trying to get if Julio, you know, doing data analysis, could see difference between alcoholics reading their brain signals. So that's how he got super intrigued in using math and physics to understand the brain. And that's how we evolved the company from starting to work only on EEG and data analysis into stimulation. So we were fascinated with reading in the brain, but then we went a step farther and say, if we understand that something's wrong with the brain, how can we heal it? How can we help these patients that we are seeing that something is not going well with the brain? Tell me and the audience just about Neuroelectrics. What's your mission and what products you have on the market today? Neuroelectrics is a company that we aim to provide personalized brain therapy using non-invasive brain stimulation. And the way we personalize brain therapy is by using EEG or brain data to guide the treatment. We were incorporated in 2011 in Barcelona, as you can tell by my accent, and we came to the U.S. in 2014. It's an interesting story because we have bootstrapped the company until now, and we are 40 people. And the way we've done that is in the path of becoming, you know, a medical device, new treatments company, we have been selling devices as a research tool to many research centers in the world. And we started to get in 2011 a lot of traction in the U.S., especially, you know, in Boston, California, and other states in which top researchers were buying our technology to do brain research. And we have currently two products in the market. One does EEG or brain monitoring wireless. So you can use this device even to send patients home and monitor with dry electrodes what's going on with the brain. And then we have another device that is a combo device that does EEG and non-invasive brain stimulation, which means injecting very low currents into the brain in a non-invasive manner. And we hope to either excite or inhibit the brain and help with different diseases. And what are some of the diseases that we can use that stimulation technology to address? So because we are working with a lot of researchers, we are seeing veterans and MIT and Harvard and hospitals using our technology in many different diseases. As a company, we have decided to invest first in epilepsy 
And one of the reasons to choose epilepsy is because it's a very well-studied neurological disease. One-third of the 50 million patients in the world do not respond to medication, so they are refractory, they still have seizures. And we have the EEG embedded into the device, which is a very valid biomarker or diagnostic tool for epilepsy. That's the first indication that we discussed with the FDA. We are now under an IDE, so in a clinical phase, on a study at Boston Children's in which we are stimulating children and adults for 10 days, 20 minutes every day, and we are reducing their seizures more or less 50% versus baseline. So the beauty here is, can you think of how maybe these patients can use at home a device for 20 minutes a day and get better where drugs are currently not working? Something interesting that we see a lot when we talk to researchers and doctors in the space is they always talk about the parts of the population that do not respond to current treatments. And they think about solving that problem. But we also think, obviously, there are side effects to drugs. And it may be great if these technologies could also replace some of the solutions we have today. And I'm curious, from your perspective, are you more focused today on addressing that part of the population that doesn't respond to traditional medicine? Or even addressing some of the parts that do respond to traditional medicine, but trying to do away with some of the current solutions? That's a very good question. As an entrepreneur, you know, you have to choose the path that gets you fastest to your vision, right? So we do believe that starting by the refractory patients is going to make our lives easier towards FDA, towards patient engagement. But I do agree with you that bottom line, once we have the FDA clearance, hopefully in a year and a half, We want to move up to the funnel, and why? Because these drugs are also creating a lot of side effects, as you mentioned. But I think that you have to start to demonstrate the efficacy of a new therapy in a particular population. And I think that in terms of safety and efficacy, starting with the refractory patients where the need is higher, I really think is the way to go. In our trial, we have even done craniotomy patients. These patients fail surgery. I mean, they fail medication, but they also fail surgery. And they even had holes in their scalp that we model with our mathematical models, and we were able to safely help these patients. So I think that before you go into the bigger population, you have to make the case on how safe and how efficacy is a new therapy And then you can maybe move up to the first line of therapy. But I think that's the good place to start. Yeah, that makes logical sense, I think, too. Let me ask another question. You're obviously focused on non-invasive solutions, and there are invasive solutions in the market as well, whether it's VNS-type devices or other implantables. How do you think about the merits, I guess, the benefits and even the cons of the non-invasive approach versus the invasive approach? I think you don't need to choose one or the other. For example, the fact that we are non-invasive and we deliver low currents limits also the effects of our technology for certain brain diseases. For example, I think it's going to be very challenging for us to help in things like Parkinson's, where the node of the disease is in a very profound area of the brain. So how can you get to that profound area from a non-invasive approach? So I think that invasive devices... In the case, for example, of Parkinson's or tremor, are great solution for these patients. I think that for us, we have a different 
business model and a different perspective that it's using non-invasive, let's say 20 minutes per day on those pathologies that have a cortical representation and that we can help all those patients without the risk of opening their scalp and implanting something into their brains. In some other diseases, I don't think there is another way but that go, you know, invasive. That makes sense. You have an interesting model, I think, for your business, which is you've got an active sales pipeline where you're selling the devices for research and to some of these institutions, but you're also going through that pathway that you mentioned with the FDA to build a treatment device. How do you think about the pros and the cons of that approach? Instead of just focusing on one business or the other, you've got two pathways there. I think that's a very, very good debate. And, you know, coming from Europe, you know, and from Barcelona and landing to the U.S., I do think it's a very healthy experience because, you know, I'm selling my devices in more than 40 countries. I have almost 4 million of revenues selling devices to the research community. And I do believe I have the product in terms of, you know, we ship maybe 300 units last year. So there are devices of mine in a lot of hospitals and research centers in the world. And that has helped me to improve the software, the hardware, the electrodes, and has made a very robust product. So I do believe I have gained time in terms of reliability of the product. And I have a unique window into what is coming next as the future because I work with researchers all over the world. So I have a good sense of what is happening in Asia, which is our fastest growing market what pathologies they are doing research and what is coming next. So I do have the feeling we are preparing the company for the future much better. And, you know, the relationships in which now we are building our clinical trials are based on those researchers. You know, we work with Harvard or Beth Israel, and they are doing Alzheimer's research. Then this leads into a clinical program, and the relationship has been built during years by the research market. So I think it's true there are different markets, but I think that if you do it in a wise, nice manner, it can really help you to speed up the clinical path. You know, you mentioned there both the hardware and the software experience that you've developed through being in the market. I'm curious, as you mentioned the concept of personalized brain therapy before. There's this closed loop implication there. How do you think about the importance of developing great software too to support the hardware that you sell? One of the things that people don't understand when they see our hardware is we really, really believe the hardware is just a tool and it will eventually become a commodity or we may get competition in terms of the hardware. What is unique about us is the software we have built and the knowledge to decide how to decode the brain in terms of EEG data analysis, but also how to personalize protocols for every particular patient. Let me give you an example. In epilepsy, for every patient that comes into Boston Children's, we get an MRI or an EEG of the patient, and we do personalize the protocol, the number of electrodes, where they are positioned, and the currents to really target that particular brain area. And that's based on mathematical models and simulation that it's a knowledge that it's very, very hard to duplicate. So I think that to your point, that's where our company, I think is going to become very strong in this personalization moving to the future. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you have a really great advantage there being early in the market. I'm curious maybe to that point, 
being in the market, you pick up a lot of experience just from selling your product, but there's also a lot of research as well on new use cases for these devices and new ways to use neurotechnology and therapy. How do you balance maybe feedback from the market direct from your product or on your product versus reading research and new things that are coming out of academia? One of the things we do is we gather all this feedback from the market, but then as a company, you kind of have to put it all together, you know, in, in a framework and say, where do I have best chances to make an impact? And we are in a super highly regulatory reimbursed area. I didn't decide as a company to go consumer. I decided to go through the medical route. So there are some rules and some things we have to do. So we take all that knowledge and based on that and the regulatory reimbursement and business model strategy decide what is the best way to put our resources. You know, I would love to have an impact on depression, but depression or pain are so complicated, so huge and so hard to demonstrate that I didn't dare to, you know. <laughs> so so I think that it takes a lot of knowledge on the market, but also a lot of knowledge on what it takes to transform an idea or a technology into a new therapy. And those worlds not necessarily always match. So as an entrepreneur, you just have to make the magic work and, you know, link both worlds in the most intelligent way. You mentioned depression and pain as other things that may be treatable with some of these technologies. I'm curious beyond epilepsy, are there any other markets that do appeal to you right now? So our first clinical trial is on epilepsy, as I have mentioned, and our second big area of work is cognitive decline, early dementia, Alzheimer's. We do see a huge opportunity in there because, you know, we think it's a huge unserved need. So we are currently funding two studies at the Harvard Institute of Aging. We are collecting all this data to be able to reach out to the FDA and propose a specific clinical trial. So somehow we are a bit earlier than the epilepsy, but that's our second big area of work, Alzheimer's and early cognitive decline. That's exciting. And when we've talked to other companies and researchers in cognitive decline, one thing that always comes up is the idea of augmentation. And I'm curious how you think about augmentation as a participant in the space. Is it something that you feel the market will eventually evolve into? Should we evolve into it? Are there ethical questions we need to deal with there before we get there? It's interesting because I was in Seoul, Korea, just maybe a month ago to participate in a global summit on neuroethics. And we have had the military and the army buying a lot of our devices for cognitive enhancement. I do think it raises a lot of ethical questions. Some of our researchers, we see that in a healthy brain, we don't know yet the effects of continuous non-invasive brain stimulation. It may well be that I am enhancing one function of the brain, but it may come at the cost of another function. So I would say that we don't know enough about specifically transcranial current stimulation and my technology to understand how it's going to affect a healthy brain on the long term. So I don't dare to go to that area. I do believe that working in unhealthy brains where we know that there is something malfunctioning about the brain, trying to help patients that are losing cognitive abilities, you know, in MCI, dementia, Alzheimer's, makes a lot of sense because the benefits are clearly balanced. But I'm not very keen or in favor of cognitive enhancement in healthy subjects yet. I haven't seen yet enough evidence to be comfortable with that. 
definitely a fair point. Do you think it's the lack of knowledge on what long-term STEM may do to the brain that is the biggest question? Or are there even other ethical questions that you think about? First of all, I think we come from a very scientific company. So I think it's lack of knowledge, the first thing that bothers me, right? Or lack of scientific evidence on the effects that you're having, right? The ethical questions, I think, are beyond our company and our technology, right? So what will happen if you develop technologies? It could be genetics, right? It could be neurotech, neurostimulation, when you can really make somebody smarter. You know, is it going to be to benefit the rich and the smarter, or is it going to help the population to get up to speed altogether? So those are questions in which the debate goes beyond companies like mine. What is the role of the government there, you know, of regulation, of access to that technology? You know, we have a great example this week with CRISPRs and the Chinese modification of the babies. I think that debate is going to come with neurotech as well. And I think that is not for me to say. What I can tell you is that as an entrepreneur, I'm not allowing anybody to buy my devices on the private side for cognitive enhancement. And I have decided to restrict my technology to the medical or research community because I do not think it's ready for prime time. That's a really commendable, I think, take for you to take a stand. And it's a fun discussion to have as well. I'm sure we'll keep talking about it. So Anna, that brings me to my last question, question we love to ask everybody on the podcast, which is, do you have a favorite book about neuroscience or neurotechnology that you would recommend we all read? There are a lot of things I like. Sometimes I put a slide of Christopher Walken, you know, in the 1980s movie Brainstorm. I kind of love the image of Christopher Walken, you know, with this headset, right? And it's in the 80s. So I think that's like a sign of how the times are evolving and how we have to think about how these technologies are mainly on the medical side. But we did a paper on brain-to-brain communication with all the efforts. And there's also this book called Nexus from Ramaz Nan which is a trilogy about this brain-to-brain and brain power communication. So I think that this debate on whether are these technologies also going to impact not only healthcare, but the way we communicate. And I think it's really fascinating to read science fiction books on brain-to-brain communication because I honestly think it's going to happen. And the sooner we start to think about it, the better off we are going to be to be prepared to embrace and use it in the best possible way. It's very true. Science fiction definitely does tend to come to life. Anna, thank you very much for joining us and thanks for helping bring some of that science fiction to life. Okay, thank you. It's my pleasure. 